Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Our Lady and Dr. Nicosi, the show dedicated to furthering the knowledge and love of the Mother of God, presented by member-supported Restoration Radio. I am your host, Alexander Krodzik, and I am joined by our guest, Father Herman Fries, professor at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Booksville, Florida. Welcome to the show, Father. Hello. Father, today's episode is devoted to Consider Our Lady in the Mystery of the Birth of Christ. St. Joseph, as we saw in a previous episode, had made a vow of virginity, just as Our Lady, and had agreed with her that they would keep their vow of perfect chastity throughout their married life. Our Lady conceived of the Holy Ghost at the Annunciation, and sometime later St. Joseph, perceiving that she was with child, and knowing that he was not the father, thought of putting her away privately. Can you explain a little what happened here, Father? Yes, certainly. Uh, and by the way, uh, I will follow for the explanation the great uh, and classic commentator Cornelius El Lapide, who was renowned for his uh, learning and piety, classic author. And so he says that St. Joseph, seeing the Blessed Virgin with child, was astonished at the novelty of the thing, and he reasoned more or less in this way, I know that this virgin is most holy, and hence I do not believe that she has committed any sin. Still, she is with child, and I know that it is not by me. Hence, I cannot remain with her. Therefore, I will commend her to God, and put her away. Now God permitted this to happen in order that the miraculous conception of, by the Holy Ghost might be attested to all. For the virginal conception is uh, shown by the testimony of Saint Joseph, to whom it caused such great perplexity, and also by the testimony of the angel whom God sent precisely to remove this perplexity. Father, why didn't St. Joseph ask for a lady for an explanation of her being with child instead of planning to put her away? Good question. Uh, Alapi says that it was uh, this, these thoughts of St. Joseph were merely the first thoughts and the first movements of his soul. Um, and, but shortly afterwards, before he even had any occasion to do anything, even the first steps in, in those lines, he was anticipated by the angel who answered, obviously, in behalf of the Virgin and explained to him that she had conceived by the Holy Ghost. So, according to Alapide, it was the first, you might say, reaction of St. Joseph, and then the angel came right away and cleared the doubt. Oh, interesting. And why did not Our Lady originally herself inform St. Joseph that she had conceived from the Holy Ghost? He says it was, and it does make all the sense, that uh, her modesty made her very unwilling, obviously, to make known uh, of her own accord this divine secret to St. Joseph, because it was obviously unheard of, a virgin conceiving, uh, and Our Lady was extremely modest, so he says that was the reason. So she chose to confide everything uh, to God, leave everything in God's hands and in His providence, uh, because after all, she knew it was all His work. So Our Lord was the, uh, God was the, the maker of this stupendous miracle, so our Lord will know how to uh, take care of the case. And uh, so she trusted in God with full assurance, and she trusted that God himself would take care of her, uh, her good name and her innocence, and that everything, God would turn everything to his greater glory. It is striking to see the blind and unshakable confidence of the Blessed Virgin in God, and we once again see how important it is for us to trust Almighty God, as Our Lady did, in all of our difficulties. 
Almighty God, as we saw, solves the problem for her by sending an angel to St. Joseph. The Holy Ghost says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in his sleep, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which the Lord spoke by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Unquote. What can you see in this passage, Father? So the most important uh, point is that St. Matthew recalls and actually quotes the famous prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, etc. So, St. Matthew shows that this prophecy is being uh, fulfilled in the miraculous conception of Our Lady and would be perfectly fulfilled when she brings forth our Lord, as we're going to see uh, soon. Father, could we now review the main events surrounding the birth of Christ? Uh, yes, so first, the, the, the historical context. So, our Lord was born around the year 753 after the foundation of Rome, what we call now the first year of the Christian era. Uh, so in this year, 553, from the foundation of Rome, the Roman emperor was Caesar Augustus, and he commanded that all the people of his empire should be enrolled, like a census, and each one had to um, give his name in his own city, that is, in the tribe and city to which he belonged. Now, both St. Joseph and Our Lady were of the family of David, and therefore they had to go to Bethlehem, which was the, the city of David, uh, to be enrolled there. Uh, so, uh, St. Joseph and, and Our Lady come down uh, from uh, Galilee to Bethlehem, which is close to Jerusalem, and but the city, and the whole area actually, was full, with, uh, uh, full of strangers, obviously, which had come for the same purpose, for the census, and therefore, they did not find any place to lodge in. There was no inn available. Uh, and they were forced actually to take shelter in a stable outside the city. So in the Holy Gospel, we read, And it came to pass that when they were there, Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Why is the fact that our Lord was born in Bethlehem so important, Father? Yes, it was actually extremely important, in fact, key, because the prophet Micaiah had foretold that the Messiah would be born at Bethlehem. And the importance of this prophecy is shown from actually the history, what happened, because when Herod wished to kill all the infants, uh, in order to kill precisely the messiahs among them, uh, Herod calls the learned doctors of the law, that is the scribes, who, by the way, occupy themselves in transcribing, reading, and explaining the sacred scriptures. So they were the experts of the, of the Holy Scriptures and the prophecies. So Herod calls them in order to inquire. And uh, we have in the Holy Gospel, we read, he, Herod, inquired of them where Christ should be born. But they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet, which is Micaiah, And thou, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, 
art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come forth the captain that shall rule my people Israel. So this was a well-known messianic prophecy. And as is clear from the categorical manner in which the Jewish scribes adduce it. So it was not an opinion or a probability, it was certain, the answer in clear terms. And so the main reason why Christ willed in his providence to be born at Bethlehem was that he might prove and be accounted as the son of David and the Messiah who was going to be born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecies. But there was also a moral reason, and that was to teach us humility, that this Bethlehem, yes, was the city of David, but uh, it was a small city and it was not a, a powerful or glorious one by any means. It is remarkable how, contrary to all human calculation and expectation, Our Lady who lived in Nazareth gave birth in Bethlehem. Yes, yes, it is very, very interesting. And it shows, obviously, the special most wise providence of God, because essentially God's providence used uh, a Roman pagan, Roman emperor, um, because uh, Augustus, as we saw, had the, the idea to enroll the, the people in his, in his dominions, essentially. And that made him make this decree and then it was an account of this decree from a pagan, the, the emperor, that St. Joseph and Our Lady uh, came down from Galilee to the Jerusalem area where Bethlehem was. Um, it's also good to, to see how um, the obedience of St. Joseph and Our Lady, even though the, the emperor was a pagan, St. Joseph and Our Lady still obey and make a difficult journey to Bethlehem in order to precisely write their names according to, to the law. And uh, so in our world, we can say that uh, divine providence made it so that the Roman emperor, emperor without even obviously knowing, made actually this prophecy made uh, more than five centuries ago uh, to be fulfilled to the letter. Very interesting. That always works in uh, very interesting ways like that. Yes, yes, yes it's really striking. In St. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, it says of St. Joseph, And he knew her not till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Could you explain to our listeners the meaning of this verse, Father? Uh, yes, as our listeners might already know, in Holy Scripture, to know one's wife means uh, the conjugal act. Uh, so when this verse says, And he knew her not till she brought forth her firstborn son, the evangelist, uh, evangelist shows that um, the conception of our Lord was miraculous and that St. Joseph in no way um, knew Our Lady, in the sense we mentioned, but uh, our Lord was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Um, then here we have to remark actually that some heretics from this passage in which we have until she brought forth her first son, they wrongly and blasphemously conclude that Our Lady, or they, they at least um, give us a possibility that Our Lady uh, was known by St. Joseph, this is what we mentioned, after, after Our Lady gave birth to Our Lord the firstborn, because they, they say, well, the Gospel says, until she brought forth her first son. Therefore, St. Joseph knew her afterwards. 
But actually, that is false. It's a false conclusion, and it's actually blasphemous. And the Holy Fathers condemn it and actually refute that error. Um, they say that obviously our lady remained always a virgin. So the first who refute this wrong interpretation of scripture are Saint Epiphanius, Saint Jerome, Saint Augustine, and many others actually. And these fathers rightly teach that the word until in this place only means that uh, refers to what happened up to the time of the birth of Christ, but doesn't say anything of what happened after the birth of Christ. So it's saying explicitly until the birth of Christ and up to the birth of Christ, uh, St. Joseph did not know Our Lady. Neither that happened afterwards, but we, uh, the Gospel is not speaking about that explicitly here. In fact, the Holy Fathers uh, teach that by this word, until, St. Matthew only wanted to assert explicitly the wonderful miracle that took place, namely that a virgin, uh, unknown by any man, uh, conceived and actually gave forth while remaining a virgin. But the evangelist doesn't speak of what happened afterwards. Father, you mentioned just now how the word until in this place only signifies what happened up to the time of, but signifies nothing of what happened after. Are there any other examples of this in Holy Scripture where the word until is used in this way? Uh, yes, there are actually many. Uh, we can, can quote a few of them. So the word until is used in that way in Psalm 109, a very famous one. We have uh, the words, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. So this is a famous prophecy where God the Father is addressing God the Son, the Messiah. So here is, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Uh, that also cannot mean that after his enemies are uh, overcome, he will cease to be at, his, at the right hand of God the Father. That's obviously absurd and that's clearly not the meaning. Uh, so here in the Psalm we have until meaning until this point without any reference and even implication that afterwards it would be different. So it's a very clear uh, instance of that. And there are others um, from the Old Testament, but I would like to refer to one which is actually very striking and very clear. It is found in uh, the fourth book of Kings. So there um, the Holy Scripture speaks about Michael. Now this is a female name. It's spelled M-I-C-H-O-L. Uh, she was the daughter of Saul, and the Holy Scripture says, the Holy Ghost says, that she had no child until the day of her death, which obviously cannot be absurd to understand it, that she had a child after her death, obviously. So this actually, this passage shows that the word until in the, in the Scriptures means only until the time, and doesn't speak about uh, anything, doesn't say anything about afterwards. This is, here is actually obvious. And it would actually give an absurd meaning to what the heretics say. Yeah, that, that last one really uh, <laughs> makes a good point. Yes. Now, some, some Protestants will also make this objection. Father, see, Matthew says, until she brought forth her firstborn son. Therefore, she had other sons, according to them, namely those who in the gospel are called the Lord's brethren. Uh, well, they are completely wrong uh, for, for many, many reasons. Uh, in Scripture, anyone is called a firstborn son who has no uh, older brothers. You see, even if you are 
the only one, you are still called the firstborn. And there are examples of that in Holy Scripture. Uh, we, we can see that in Exodus 4 and Exodus 13, for example. So the word uh, firstborn in the scriptural uh, sense or usage only excludes the existence of any previous sons. Uh, so the fact that our Lord is called the firstborn by any means even implies that there were others, uh, not at all. But besides that, obviously it is a doctrine of the faith that uh, the Blessed Virgin always remained a virgin. And besides the Holy Fathers teach this, referring to prophecies of the Old Testament and figures of the Old Testament, uh, for example, they refer to the famous passage of the prophet Ezekiel that speaks about the gate of the temple that will remain always shut. And I have here the exact phrase speaking about the, the gate. The gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened. And this, this is a foreshadowing of Our Lady's being mother, but retaining her virginal integrity. In a word, the uh, universal consent of the fathers plus the census fidei of all the faithful, plus the perpetual tradition of the universal church, all of them teach that Our Lady was always a virgin and before the birth of Christ, during the birth of Christ and after the birth of Christ. And um, besides the church defined the, that or declared that after the heretics in the Protestant revolt started denying some of them uh, that doctrine of the faith. This is obviously a miracle, but as we know, nothing is impossible to God. In fact, nothing is difficult for him. He has only to wish something and it is done. So here he wished that his mother should remain always a virgin, and so it was. Yes, this was a stupendous miracle, but as you said, easy for God. The Catechism of Trent says that it is admirable beyond the power of thoughts or words to express. That is, it is a miracle in the strictest sense, something that is beyond the power of, of any creature, but not it's, it's possible for God alone, for him alone. Um, I would like to actually here quote the, the teaching of the Catechism of Trent on the point. I will quote, quote, He is born of his mother without any diminution of her maternal virginity, the Catechism teaches, just as he afterwards went forth from the sepulchre while it was closed and sealed, and entered the room in which his disciples were assembled, the doors being shut. Or, not to depart from everyday examples, just as the rays of the sun penetrate without breaking or injuring in the least the solid substance of glass, so after a like but more exalted manner did Jesus Christ come forth from his mother's womb without injury to her maternal virginity, which, immaculate and perpetual, we celebrate with most just praises. Such was the work of the Holy Ghost, who at the conception and birth of the Son, so favored the Virgin Mother as to impart to her fecundity while preserving inviolate her perpetual virginity. So that's what the Catechism of Trent says on the point. Father, you mentioned that the Holy Fathers teach that the perpetual virginity of the Mother of God was foreshadowed in the gate of the temple which Ezekiel saw closed. Were there any other types or foreshadowings of the virginal conception and birth of Christ? 
Uh, yes, the Holy Fathers understood, in fact, uh, many things in the sacred scriptures to refer to these mysteries. Uh, for example, we have in Daniel um, the prophecy of a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, which became, the stone became a great mountain and filled the universe. We have also the rod of Aaron, which uh, blossomed miraculously among all the other rods. Uh, we have that in the book of uh, Numbers. Then we have the famous uh, bush, which uh, burned without being consumed, the one that Moses saw in Exodus 3. And so the, the bush uh, burns, but is not consumed. So our lady gives birth, but remains always an immaculate virgin. In Genesis, we read how, as a punishment for sin, God said to Eve, In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. But the fathers and theologians say that Our Lady did not suffer any of the effects of this curse. Yes, certainly no. And uh, Our Lady is the new Eve, and, uh, but she was exempt from this law since she uh, brought forth our Lord, preserving her virginity inviolate and without any pain at all. Neither of body, nor of soul, nor, nor anguish, nor any, any uh, pain or difficulty. Obviously, other women labor much in giving birth and suffer very severe pains, and, uh, but Our Lady endured no pain at all. In fact, she did not even need a midwife or any assistant, neither for herself nor for her son, which that, that by the way, is a, a, a sign that we have in the Gospel of uh, the miraculous birth of Christ and, the, and so forth, because uh, normally, if everything were according to the near loss of nature, it will be hard, difficult, and our lady could not have immediately after the birth just uh, put the, the cloth around our Lord, etc., like uh, very smoothly. And that happened in that way because it was very smoothly and without any pain and so forth. In fact, reading the Gospel in St. Luke, how our lady, just as after bringing forth our Lord, she herself took our Lord and uh, wrapped him, and uh, she herself placed him in the manger. And this word in St. Luke, we have this, this uh, verse. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. So all of these are signs of the, the teaching of the faith of the church and tradition also, uh, that Our Lady brought forth our Lord, remaining a virgin, and also in a very... Uh, smooth and completely painless manner. The description of the Gospel of St. Luke is very beautiful in its simplicity, but do we have any descriptions on the part of the holy doctors as to how the birth of Christ happened? Uh, yes, they are, they are many and, and they're all very good, but I chose for this show uh, three from three great doctors, all of them very renowned for extreme learning and also great piety and a great devotion to Our Lady. So these are St. Robert Bellarmine, St. Bonaventure, and St. Alphonsus Liguori. Obviously, they all agree in the essentials, uh, right? But each one has his own insights or even details as to how it might have happened. So I think it would be nice to, uh, to go through them if, if you think we have the time. Certainly, Father. Why, why don't we start with uh, St. Robert Bellarmine? Uh, yes, so he says um, the following. Christ is born an infant from the Virgin, and is born a true man from a true woman, but in a manner extraordinary and new. He is born as the splendor from the light of the sun, and as a figure or image which is impressed in wax or reflected in a mirror. 
Splendor proceeds from light without labor, without pain, without corruption, in a clean manner and without a delay of time. Thus also was the infant Christ born of his virgin mother. The mother did not lie on a bed, did not wail, and did not experience the pains of those who are giving birth, but being continuously strong and joyful, wrapped her son in swaddling clothes and placed him in the manger. She did not suffer corruption, but remained a virgin after birth, just as a ray of the sun passes through a glass window without breaking it. Finally, she was not in labor as other women who are in labor for a long time in giving birth, often for entire hours. But in a moment, the infant who was in her womb appeared outside of her womb in the sight of his rejoicing mother. And just as an image which is reflected in a mirror is very similar to that which produces it, and is produced without the labor of any painter and without a delay of time, so also the infant Christ, being born without the labor of his mother or the help of a midwife and without an interval of time, was suddenly brought forth and very much resembled his mother. And St. Benjamin does something very striking. He says, there was never any son so similar to his mother in corporal likeness as Christ was to his own mother in the likeness of grace and virtue. The mother was a perpetual virgin and the son was a perpetual virgin. The mother was without any sin and the son did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The mother was full of grace and the son was full of grace and truth. That's a great quote from St. Robert Bellman, Father. Moving on to the next testimony, what does St. Alphonsus write? St. Alphonsus depicts the scene uh, in uh, very beautiful words uh, with a lot of um, color, let, let, let us say. Uh, he writes, No sooner had Mary entered into the cave than she began immediately to pray. And the hour of her delivery being come, she loosened her hair out of reverence, spreading it over her shoulders. And behold, she sees a great light. She feels in her heart a heavenly joy. She casts down her eyes and, O oh God, what does she see? She sees on the ground an infant, so tender and beautiful that he fills her with love. But he trembles, he cries, and stretches out his arms to show that he desires she should take him into her bosom. I stretched forth my hands to seek the caresses of my mother, according to the revelation of St. Bridget. Mary calls Joseph. Come, Joseph, she said, come and see, for the Son of God is now born. Joseph comes, and when he sees Jesus already born, he adores him in the midst of a torrent of sweet tears. Then the Blessed Virgin reverently took her beloved son in her arms and placed her in her bosom. She tried to warm him by the heat of her cheeks and of her bosom. Pressing him to her cheeks and bosom, she warmed him with all the joy and tenderness of a mother's love. The saint continues, Consider the devotion, the tenderness, the love which Mary felt at seeing in her arms and on her breast the Lord of the world, the Son of the Eternal Father, who had deigned even to become her son, choosing her from among all women to be his mother. Mary, now holding him to her bosom, adores him as God, kissing his feet as her king, and then his face as her son. 
Then she hastily seeks to cover him and wraps him up in swaddling clothes. That's a really beautiful depiction, Father, of our Lord's birth. And last of all, you have a description of the mystery by the seraphic doctor himself. Uh, yes, St. Bonaventure. Uh, he has also a very nice one. Uh, so he, he writes in the following words. When the hour of her delivery had arrived on Sunday at midnight, the virgin, rising from her seat, rested herself against a pillar which was there. Joseph sat, perhaps grieving that it was not in his power to provide what was fitting for such a time. Then he arose and took some hay out of the manger and laid it at the feet of the virgin, and thereupon withdrew himself to another part. Then the Son of the Eternal God was born without pain or hurt to his mother, having passed from her in an instant to the bed of hay, prepared for him at her feet. His mother quickly stooped down and took him up into her arms, and sweetly embracing him, laid him on her lap. After this, she perhaps wrapped him in her veil and placed him in the manger. And now the ox and the donkey, with bended knees and with their heads placed over the manger, breathed upon him as if they were gifted with reason and knew that their warm breath would be of service to an infant so slightly protected from the severity of the season. But his mother, kneeling down, adored and gave thanks to God, saying, I thank thee, Lord, Holy Father, for thou hast given to me thy son, and I adore thee, eternal God, and thee, the son of the living God, and mine. And Joseph likewise adored him, and taking the donkey's saddle, he drew, we may imagine, uh, away from it the pillion of wood or leather, and placed it by the manger, that the virgin might sit upon it. But she, sitting herself there, used it for a support, and so remained that mother, who is blessed above all, gazing on the manger, having, as it were, no thought or love for anyone but for her dearest son. Father, now that we have seen how the great doctors vie with one another in praising the spotless purity and worth of the Virgin Mother of God, one cannot fail to recall a passage of the incomparable treatise on the true devotion to the Blessed Virgin of St. Louis de Montfort. At the very beginning of his masterpiece, before singing himself the praises of the Virgin, St. Louis very rightly remarks, The saints have said admirable things of this holy city of God, and as they themselves avow, they have never been more eloquent and more content than when they have spoken of her. We saw that with St. Bernard in one of our previous episodes, and now we see the most learned and pious doctors vie with each other again in praising Our Lady's spotless virginity and maternity. Yes, yes, it is true. And uh, here I would actually like to remark something which I think is actually uh, worth uh, our, our thought and reflection, is that we see in the great doctors among themselves very great differences. That is, they are separated from each other by many centuries in some cases, they are separated by nationality, different uh, nationality, different culture, different language, styles, backgrounds, characters. Uh, so we can think, for example, of uh, we having like a Saint Jerome, the old-fashioned Roman simple austerity, and then we can compare that to the Saint Francis de Sales, who has obviously the gentlemanliness and the all the the manners, refined manners of a Savoyan. Then we have, uh, for example, 
the impersonal and very intellectual style of a St. Thomas Aquinas. And then we have on the other side the very imaginative, colorful, and even uh, passionate style of a Neapolitan like St. Alphonsus. We can see also St. Ephraim, who writes very poetically in the Syrian language, very obscure old language, and then all uh, couched in a, in a culture which is very different from us, like Oriental. And then we have the later father, the doctors of the Trent era, which speak right in European languages, and everything is couched in the style and culture uh, of Europe, which is very akin to ours. So in a word, what I point out is that the holy doctors are very different among themselves in their style, what they write, um, their approach, what is their goal in writing. Some write apologetics, some write explanation, some write uh, spiritual direction. So very, very different. But among all these really, really striking differences, we see like a common thing, which is very nice and striking, is that all of them have this common uh, denominator, which uh, connects them all the way through the centuries and the different countries. And that is, they all have a very, very deep and tender devotion to our Lady, the Blessed Mother of God. That's like the common thread of all of them. And uh, I think this is very remarkable because in a way it teaches us that, the, without words, right, that the Holy Ghost only fills with his gifts and into the brim as he did with the Holy Doctors, and those souls who are, uh, have a great love and devotion to our Blessed Lady. And it is not really surprising because Our Lady is a treasure of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. So it is no wonder that in all the Holy Doctors, uh, they were very, very devout to Our Lady. Yes, and that makes all the sense since the Holy Ghost gives his gifts through the mediation of the Blessed Mother. Well, Father, having covered the doctrinal points in several writings of the saints concerning the subject of our episode, I think this would be a good place for us to end our show. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out? Uh, yes, actually, well, I would make a point of what we saw that, just as we saw that the holy doctors received order, illumination, and gifts through uh, the devotion to Our Lady, and so also we should uh, be very devout to Our Lady, knowing that through her we will receive the gifts of the Holy Ghost and His graces. Obviously, nothing. Uh, can be so great as, as the holy doctors, but all the races that we do need, which might be actually quite great in our days, you know, to defend the faith and to know what to answer when we are questioned and all sorts of things, uh, our lady will give us those uh, lights from the Holy Ghost. Well, Father, thank you for your time. We will talk to you again next time as we continue this series. May God bless you. May God bless you. Thank you.